The Zephaniah text is such obvious good news, pardoned while guilty, graced with undeserved love from God, so I wanted you to hear it. But I also know that I promised last week I'd offer a part two regarding Luke chapter 3. This might be a familiar section of Luke centered around the proclamation of John the Baptist. Chapter 3 starts very formally announcing that the Word of God arrived in a very particular moment in history and that it did not come to the place or through a person it was supposed to come through. The Word of God did not seek permission from any worldly power or authority, and the Word did not feel any pressure to be proclaimed from a temple or a palace. Instead, the Word is again shown to be wild and willful and holy and free. And in complete freedom, the Word of God comes to John, of all people, in the wilderness of all places. And to proclaim the Word of God, John quotes some good old news, some good old good news, I should say, from what would have been a very well-known text from Isaiah, a text from 500-plus years before when Israel had been craving hope in the midst of exile and pain and suffering. That's when uh, John said, prepare the way of the Lord so that all flesh shall see the salvation of God. He was quoting Isaiah, all flesh. That was the good news of the text we heard last week. All flesh shall see salvation. Instead of using our vision, as we usually do, to dehumanize each other as we dwell only on stuff that's temporary or untrue, things like age, gender, skin color, socioeconomic status, instead of getting stuck on stuff that's designed to divide us, John proclaims this community-building, life-giving good news that as every valley is filled and every mountain is made low, as the rough ways are made smooth, all flesh shall use our vision to see the salvation of God, to see God's truth. We'll see the world's lies for what they are and instead only see God's truth, which is grace, mercy, peace, and love. Joy to the world is coming. That's what John is proclaiming in the wilderness. So that's what we talked about with those first six verses of chapter 3 in Luke. And people are noticing. Even people in town are hearing stories about what John is preaching in the wilderness. So let me read what comes next. John said to the crowds that came out to be baptized by him, You brood of vipers! Who warned you to flee from the wrath to come? Bear fruits worthy of repentance. Don't begin to say to yourselves, we have Abraham as our ancestor. For I tell you, God's able from these stones to raise up children to Abraham. Even now the axe is lying at the root of the trees. Every tree, therefore, that does not bear good fruit is cut down and thrown into the fire. And the crowds asked him, what then should we do? And in reply he said to them, whoever has two coats must share with anyone who has none. Whoever has food must do likewise. Even tax collectors came to be baptized, and they asked him, Teacher, what should we do? And he said to them, Collect no more than the amount prescribed for you. Soldiers also asked him, And what should we do? And he said to them, Do not extort money from anyone by threats or false accusations, and be satisfied with your wages. As the people were filled with expectation and all were questioning in their hearts concerning John, whether he might be the Messiah, 
John answered all of them by saying, I baptize you with water, but one more powerful than I is coming. I'm not worthy to untie the thong of his sandals. He'll baptize you with the Holy Spirit and fire. His winnowing fork is in his hand to clear his threshing floor and to gather the wheat into his granary, but the chaff he'll burn with unquenchable fire. So with many other exhortations, he proclaimed the good news to the people. Verse 7 says, crowds were coming out to be baptized by him. So I want you to imagine people streaming from villages, maybe even Jerusalem itself, making this journey on foot to the Jordan River, which is in the middle of nowhere. Have you ever parked a long way from a venue? Like, I don't know if you were maybe on your way to a music festival or a sporting event or a parade, but have you ever had to park many blocks away, maybe a mile away? What does that feel like as you make your way toward your destination? Maybe you see the stadium in the distance, or maybe you hear the the crowds gathering up ahead, and that sound gets closer and closer, louder and louder. The anticipation grows in you, right? Kind of exciting. Well, John has taken up shop in the wilderness. Of course, this happens because God is making a point. God is making the point that God shows up in vulnerable, dangerous places, not just easy, comfortable places. It's a powerful sign that God would show up there. But for people who want to witness this powerful sign, they've got to pack up a day's worth of provisions, maybe ask off from work for a day. Put it this way, it wasn't very convenient for anybody to get baptized by John to go out and see him for themselves, to hear what he had to say for themselves. But Luke says that despite the challenges, crowds are coming out. So, for all their trouble, how are they welcomed? Like, after the long walk, coffee, cookies? Not at all. A warm smile and a handshake? No. Luke tells us that to the crowds who'd come out to be baptized, John says, you brood of vipers, who warned you to flee from the wrath to come, bear fruits worthy of repentance? They've come all this way, and John's message is you brood of vipers? It sounds harsh and hard, because it is. It's the kind of thing an Old Testament prophet would say. And that's what Luke wants to get across, that John, this guy in the wilderness, speaks with the authority, with the urgency of a prophet. A prophet has the unenviable task of announcing to a bunch of sleepy people who are enjoying their sleep that the house they're in is on fire. (laughs) Nobody wants to wake up from cozy, deep slumber. Does cozy, deep slumber ever happen to you? I know some of us struggle with sleep, but think about the last time that you were like in a vivid dream. Maybe you felt like you were glued to your bed. You were in a deep sleep, and something or someone woke you up. (laughs) Was your first thought, thank you, sound or person or animal, for snapping me out of that restfulness? What can I do for you? 
being woken up suddenly stinks. I mean, it's like among the worst things, right? Nobody likes that. John receives all these people in the wilderness, and he effectively is a human alarm. You brood of vipers, bear fruits worthy of repentance. It sounds harsh and hard on purpose, not to shame them, not to put them on the defensive, but to sound an alarm, to snap them out of their effortless, assumed spirituality. He wants them to repent, turn their back on all the world's lies so that they would come to God, so that they would come to truth. John knows the vast majority of the crowds live life without much thought of their relationship with God because they don't believe they need a relationship with God. They believe it's simply enough that they were born Jewish. They are sons and daughters of Abraham, after all, children of God's promise, so they're entitled to salvation. We're good to go, right? This section of this text made me think a lot about entitlement. It's sneaky evil, entitlement. It's this attitude that pushes away gratitude and thanks because it assumes an other's generosity. It assumes status. It assumes power without requiring participation in relationships or building any skills or growing in any way. It's an attitude that just takes and creates lots of space for disappointment, too. Entitlement expects something for nothing, oftentimes based on work somebody else did or relationships someone else had. I mean, the easiest examples of entitlement, it's like a kid trying to live off the reputation of their parent or an emerging adult thinking the world will just provide for them because, I mean, it's me. (laughs) Hello, I'm Jason Stanton, and you're welcome for knowing me, you know, that kind of thing. I know I had classmates at seminary who, in their first semester, I actually heard somebody say almost exactly this, just put a collar on me already. It's me. My dad was a pastor. My grandpa was a pastor. Like, do I really have to prove anything to anybody? I've run into the same kind of people in lots of areas of work and play. I'll bet you have too. I don't think pastor types are special when it comes to entitlement. And to be honest, all of us from time to time feel a sense of entitlement as though we shouldn't have to work at something or participate in something in order to receive the benefits of that something. Like, come on, it's me. That's the attitude that John is snapping at, spiritual entitlement. God knows who me and who you really are. You brood of vipers, bear fruits worthy of repentance. Repent, turn around, turn away from your sleepy, assumed, entitled spiritual lives. And it sounds harsh, but that doesn't make it bad news. See, a difficult message is not automatically bad news. And I talked about this last week a bit. We, First Lutheran, have to be, if we want to be a church and not a country club, we have to be about truth, even and especially when truth is hard. Waking each other up from our comfortable slumber and snapping repent is hard, but not bad. 
The gospel text says toward the end of the reading for today, so with many other exhortations, John proclaimed the good news to the people. You brood of vipers is part of John's good news. Because to hear the good news, the people of John's day first have to understand they need to repent. To receive the good news, they had to come to terms with their own sense of spiritual entitlement, the ways they experienced spiritual privilege, the ways they believed the world instead of believing God. So I heard this text Tuesday at our monthly pastor's conference meeting, and I heard the you brood of vipers line, and I was like, oh boy. (laughs) I thought, in the middle of so much grief, you know, like, life in a pandemic is hard. Parenting, friending, being a kid, the degree of difficulty for our lives is higher than it was B.C., before COVID. We've added more layers of complications to our gatherings, to our studies, our politics, even church. All of it's harder. And then I heard this text with John the Baptist calling me a poisonous snake, and the the good church nerd that I am, that part of me was like, yep, I hear you, John. Thanks for the scolding. I deserve it. I'm not as diligent in my devotions. My prayer life has waned this past month. Thank you, John. May I have another. But the other 90-something percent of me heard that you brood of vipers, and I just went, really? Seriously? If Advent is a season of waiting, waiting in hope for the Lord to come, preparing to celebrate the birth of Jesus, my Advent waiting this year, as I was trying to describe it. It's a series of days of me admitting how tired and weary and worn I am from nearly two years of higher-than-usual stress, trying to offer spiritual strength to 1,800 other people who are tired and weary and worn from nearly two years of higher-than-usual stress. Maybe if I felt like I was in a deep sleep, dreaming, slobbering out the side of my mouth and glued to my bed. Maybe if that's how life felt right now, I'd receive the brood of vipers thing maybe more fully, but I'm not sure this is a moment of rest for many of us. I think many of us are pretty tired, weak, and worn. And as I thought about how this text speaks to tired people in a worn moment, like our extended weary years-long moment, instead of dwelling on the brood of vipers phrase, I was drawn to the invitation that follows right after. Bear fruits worthy of repentance. This is the phrase that brought light to my soul because I thought about what we usually bear. Like, what do we too often carry instead of good fruits? Hurts, right? That one person or maybe that one group of people said or did something that genuinely hurt your feelings, hurt your self-understanding or a relationship you valued and now it's different. Now it hurts and you bear that. You carry that around. Or you bear guilt or a piece of shame for something you did or didn't do that hurt someone else for something you said that was maybe selfish or maybe it was unintentionally harmful, but it still feels bad. And you bear that guilt whenever you see or think about that person or that situation. And we carry that around. 
We bear our past. Oftentimes, the bad old stuff is more memorable than the good old days. We bear stuff that we want to move on from, but can't, or maybe better said, stuff we won't move on from. And so, we carry the past around. And I know many of us bear our future pressure about whether we're saving enough or doing enough or being enough for our kids or our neighborhood or our world. We bear the future and carry that too. We bear all sorts of burdens like a weighed down pack mule and it physically gives us ulcers and high blood pressure and creates alcoholics out of us and pushes us to eat so much that most of us are above our ideal weight. Bearing the weight of the world isn't just a spiritual idea, it's a physical reality. It's an emotional reality. It's an intellectual quandary. And almost all the time, except for little moments like this in worship, most of the time we just accept that. Most of the time we hardly even try to get rid of any of this stuff. We forget that bearing hurts and guilt and the past and the future, bearing all this junk is optional. In Christ, in the love of Jesus, starting with this proclamation from John the Baptist, we, Jesus followers, opt out. When we wake up long enough to remember, we don't have to bear burdens that keep us from a relationship with God, a relationship that frees us from sin, death, and the power of the devil, that's able to free us from all these hurts and guilt and past and future. When we really hear this invitation to bear fruit, we sit up a little straighter. We breathe more deeply. We talk about our neighbor with more kindness, with a greater sense of forgiveness, with more compassion. Indeed, we opt out of the world's lies. We opt out of life centered around burdens and instead in Christ live a life centered around peace and joy, hope, and you guessed it, love. Bear that. Carry love around and death shall be no more and tears and pain and sadness shall be no more. Of course, for the crowds who first heard John the Baptist, they must have been like, okay, he's a prophet. He's telling us what we need to hear. Bear fruits. But in the end, he's just giving us another to-do list. How do I do that may have been a question that they left with. How do I bear fruits? And that's why John ends his good news by saying, one more powerful than I is coming who will baptize you with the Holy Spirit and fire. He'll clear the threshing floor and burn the chaff. Jesus will be the one to empower, equip, and encourage you. That's the good news John wanted them all to hear. If he'd known the words, maybe John would have sung our hymn of the day to the crowds, a hymn that gets at how this is good news for us how Jesus is the one who equips us to bear fruits. People look east, the time is near of the crowning of the year. Set every peak and valley humming with the word, the Lord is coming. People look east and sing today, love, the Lord is on the way. Love, 
the Lord is on the way. Bear the good news of God. Amen.